Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here as well, and I'm excited to be able to continue on with you in our series in John tonight. Before we get into the sermon, there is one thing that I want to be able to say that we mentioned in the, um, in the morning service as well, and that is that it's been a bizarre few years, and whether or not, I mean, I don't know, different people have very different opinions right now on whether or not we're on the other side of COVID, or whether it's ongoing, or whether, whatever the case, things have begun to feel like a new normal. And in that, as a church, we have had, it's been really fun to have so many of you that have joined us recently, that the church is really consistent and even growing in our community group connection. Um, We're growing in what we're seeing in Sundays, even though Sundays are a little bit lagging behind our CG connection right now. Um, The one area that we have not been growing is in the number of those who are serving in the church. And so as your pastor, I want to come and gently entreat you to um, get involved that way. Now, the, the difficult part about something like this is that usually those who are serving most will hear this most um, and f- or feel guilty because of it. There's an old like percentage that people throw around for churches that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Um, and, and there's some truth to that. Um, so I just want to mention that there are lots of opportunities to serve, um, and we would love if you are willing to help get, help us out with some of our ministries, to make our ministries possible, that would be great. Um, we are, I've been told, Tatum told me, our children's director, that we are close to being able to offer childcare at the 5 p.m. again, which would be great. Um, and, but another huge need we have right now is on the screen in front of you, pro presenter training. Um, both services, that managed to get up there very quick as if the pro presenter people wanted it to be seen. <laughs> um, it feels intimidating to run the slides because it's the job that nobody notices unless you, miss, unless you mess up. But it's, and I don't want to diminish the ministry and work of our pro presenter techs, um, but it is not a highly comple- complex ministry to be a part of. You most of the time really just have to advance the slide. Um, but we need help. We're going to have some training if you'd like to join that team next Sunday, the 13th at 7 p.m. And so if you're not going to the pizza with the pastors and you want to help by running slides, come out to that meeting. All right, with that, let's pray, and we're going to jump in. Father, we come to you tonight, and I I pray that your spirit would meet us in this moment. Whatever our days have brought so far, it was sunshiny, and it it started off wet, but the sunshine came out. It was an unseasonably warm day, so we've, we've had a lot behind us. Some are feeling tired. Some are feeling energized. Whatever the case tonight, I pray that you would, you would focus our minds and our hearts on what you have for us in your word tonight. Would you give us the ears to hear your word for us and to come to a greater understanding of who you are and who, what you've done for us in Christ. And so we lift this time to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Amen. One of the big questions that every one of us faces, whether you're here and you're a Christian who's been walking with God for a long time, or you're somebody who's unsure where you land, or maybe even you definitely know you don't believe in a God, there's still a question that we face of, is there a God? I mean, that's one of the top, one of the baseline questions. And if so, if there is a God, so if you just grant that there is a God who created this place, then one of the big questions we're faced with is, what does it look like, or does God, the creator, interact at all with the place and the people he created. And, and so this is a question that we end up wrestling with. It's, it's questions for life and theology, and through there are all kinds of different perspectives. Even when you look back, if you look back at like the beliefs of the founding fathers of this nation, that was at that time, it was really a deistic perspective that had taken hold of most of them. And a, de- a deism is a belief that God is kind of a cosmic watchmaker that put together the universe and put together human existence on earth, but it's almost like he wound it up and then stepped back to let it run. And so there's no involvement with people or no direct involvement. Um, And so with that, I think it it only gets more complicated or complex as we get to know the universe that we live in more deeply. Um, I don't know if any of you have been tuned into what's happened with the Webb telescope as they've released new images it's been fascinating to me. I don't think the slides are possibly going to do this justice, but have you guys seen the, the images they've gotten of the pillars of creation? It's incredible. Um, here, maybe this will help. There, yeah, that's better. I can't see any of you anymore. <laughs> but, but look at that. This is somewhere, some of you know exactly where this is. I I haven't paid attention that much. I just think it's pretty. Um, But this is somewhere deep, far beyond what any of our eyes can see. Into the depths of the universe, we're able to look way beyond ever before. And we've seen this this place before. They've, They've zeroed in with the Hubble telescope and got good imagery, but the new telescope technology that they have has allowed imagery that is, that is, that captures it much more fully than ever before. And so when you think about that and you start to realize exactly how small we are, that we're in this giant universe this, this, that stretches out beyond our reach, and you just wonder if, the, if the, the God who created us is the same God who created that, then how is he going to care about what's happening on a small blue marble in the midst of this sea? Or does he? Well, as we've walked through the Gospel of John together, that's one of the the incredible things in John's Gospel is he begins right from the start by saying, in the beginning was the Word, Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He says, Jesus is the Creator God who took on flesh to dwell with us, that he came and came entered into the bounds of our life and existence. And and this is part of the uniqueness of Christianity is it is a claim that the creator God is fully transcendent, the maker of heaven, the heavens and earth, and is intimately involved with the people he made, with us, which what theologians would say is imminent. And so today's passage helps us with this. It helps us to understand um, how that can be so and shows us how God, God's closeness to us and, and really in a beautiful Trinitarian way that we see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so what, what I hope you're able to see today is that, that if you are in Christ, you are not alone. God is your helper, and in Christ, God is with us and in us. 
And so this is what we read, beginning in chapter 14, verses 12 and following. If you have a Bible, please turn with me there. If not, it'll be on the screens for you. So again, for context, Jesus is in the, this is called the farewell discourse. Jesus is at the table with his disciples. Judas had left. Um, He was talking with the disciples, and this is what we read tonight. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Will you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and will make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so in this, Jesus is telling his disciples again that he's about to leave. Now, they still didn't get it, but at the center of this is that he makes the claim that that the Spirit of God dwells with us and will be in us or will be in you. And so that's the big idea tonight is that that God is with us and in us, even though Jesus is not with us in, in physicality at this point. Now, as, we, as this breaks down, though, it, we get, begin to see how the Father, Son, and Spirit are involved. So Jesus begins by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. This is the, literally, amen, amen. And we've seen this is when it is something we can trust. It is bedrock truth that we can count on that Jesus is telling us. So he says, listen, this is truth for you, that if you believe in me, you're going to do the works that I do. And, and even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father, And it's all about the Father being glorified in the Son. And so the first call to us tonight is to do the Father's work. Jesus says we're going to do the same work that he has done. And even greater things. 
Now he's saying this to the disciples. Can you imagine hearing this as the disciples? Think about the things that they've seen Jesus do. They saw him turn water into wine. They saw him heal people. They saw him heal the man who had been, who had been crippled for 38 years in Jerusalem at the Bethesda pool. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb for four days. And so after, after the kind of things that they had seen Jesus do, the miraculous things they had seen, to be told, like, you're going to do the things that, that I have done, and even greater. How in the world is that possible? And now this extends to us. So how is it possible that we are called by Christ to do the Father's work, to do the things that he has done and called us to, and even greater things? Like that, that's mind-boggling. And for most of us, we haven't had that experience. Now, I've been a part of incredible things and seen God work. And I've seen God heal people that we pray for and, and lay our hands on and pray for them. And so, but it's not, I don't have the ability, and, and I don't think any of us do, like Jesus, to, to choose at our will when we do that work. I don't think any of us has ever raised somebody from the dead. And I've certainly never turned water into wine. I, don't, I feel like there's a reason that Jesus doesn't give us that gift. And so, so with this, how do we understand that we're called to do the Father's work like Jesus did and even greater things? Well, I think this is important for us in a few levels. First, it's important for us to know that we're called to do something, that, that Christianity isn't just internal. Now, there's a good focus that we can have on theology and on study of theology and thinking rightly about God. And, and there's a good focus that we can have on seeking God's presence and making sure that our hearts and our souls are connecting with God. And, and so we do those things as we, as we practice spiritual disciplines and try to get time alone in, in the study of scripture and in prayer. And, and so we can, we can do a lot of things to cultivate our own hearts and our own souls souls as we pursue Jesus or as we pursue spirituality or a religious pursuit, but a life that does all of those things and never reaches beyond an individual's desires and well-being or interior life is actually a deficient faith. And we talk about this a lot. At the men's, if those of you, the men who were at the men's conference this weekend, we talked about that real spirituality, true spirituality takes three aspects. It takes our head, our heart, and our hands. That it is about thinking rightly about who God is, and our hearts, and our affections, our love for God being stirred, and also that we show what we believe by our lives. Literally, the word belief in English came from a cognate of by life, because that which you believe is shown by your life. And we know this too, because if, if somebody in our life claims to believe something and their actions completely contradict what they're saying, then we even have a phrase for that, right? That your actions speak louder than your words. And so this is James saying, okay, you say that you have faith, great. I'll show you my faith by what I do. Now, in our theological streams that Redemption Hill typically kind of swims in, we like to make sure that people understand that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, that we cannot earn anything before God. We cannot earn God's favor in our lives. And yes and amen, that is true. It is only through the finished work of Jesus on the cross in our place for our sin, what all of this is headed toward, that John says is his glory. 
that he is our sacrifice, and then has extended to us that we are declared righteous in justification. We are cleansed. We are, our sin is wiped away, and he then gives us life through his resurrection. He reigns and rules at the right hand of the Father and is coming back to make all things new. And so, yes, that's true. And if we actually love God, our lives will show it through our obedience. When I was first coming into churches, when I was in middle school, there was a passage that I remember memorizing in Ephesians chapter 2, an incredible text where Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he starts out with a very strong statement in that chapter. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And so it goes on in verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And and so this is, I know that it continues, but that's where it stopped as I memorized it. And I think a lot of times within kind of a reformed theological scheme that was we, we want to focus on 2, 8, and 9, that we say, okay, by grace we've been saved through faith. So it's by grace. It's a gift of God. Our faith is a gift from God. And it's through our faith, nothing that we do. And we want to make sure to emphasize that. It's God's gift to us. It's not by your works. And why? So that we can't boast. So we can't be prideful before God. But verse 10 is part of the same argument. We have to keep reading and and see the context of the text because it goes on to say for, that means an explanation of our salvation, an extension of that, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what church? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that means that there are good works that God has saved us to and called us to and saved for us to do. Now, the good news in that is that whenever we do something good, we are actually joining God in his work. That just as God in creation formed what was shapeless and filled what was empty and cultivated and built a place in paradise for man and woman to be introduced, that that we are called to join God in his work of forming and filling and cultivating this world. And so there's there's things that are put in front of us. And, And the crazy promise of what Jesus says in this text in John chapter 14 is he said, listen, you can count on this. You're gonna do the works that you've seen me do and even greater things. And so, yes, we need to think about we are saved by grace through faith and we are saved to accomplish God's work because we are the instruments God uses to accomplish his work in his world. And so what does it mean to do even greater works than Jesus? That's a confusing statement. I think the disciples were probably confused by it too. I don't think that it, I don't think it excludes the miracles that they had seen, but I don't think it's limited to that. I do think when he says this, it has to include what he just told them, that the command he gave to them is to love one another. And so love in action and serving others has to be involved in that. But I'm convinced reading this that what Jesus is reflecting is that this is a particular moment of time in redemptive history. 
that Jesus' miracles, his works, the, the, his teaching, the things that he did while he was on earth in the flesh with the disciples for that period of time, that they were limited to a time and a place. And remember, he was in, like, we think about these places as being a big deal, but, but nobody in Rome knew that Bethlehem existed. Like, and, and the, the Sea of Galilee was known to be a fruitful place, but, but the whole of Palestine was kind of an edge of the empire place. He, Jesus grew up in, the, in a country place. He wasn't even in the city, Jerusalem. This was in an obscure place that Jesus stepped. And so, even, and so his ministry was limited to those locations. Oh, there was only people that saw him and heard his voice. And even then, there were so many people that didn't get it. We see this all the way through the Gospel of John, right? The people heard Jesus, and they still didn't believe that, that they saw Jesus perform these miracles and still didn't believe. Even his own disciples didn't get it too often. But I think what he's saying to his disciples here is that we are in this moment on the cusp of the center point of all of God's work of redemption that's about to be accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus, in his ascension and glorification. And so I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, the work that you've seen begun here is about to expand beyond your wildest dreams. So that right now, in a continent that the disciples didn't know existed, we are still reading these words 2,000 years later. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, though it's the smallest of the seeds, it becomes the largest of the plants. He wasn't talking about the process of growth. He was saying that, that what seemed small was going to leave an impact that far outsized it. That, that, Jesus, that those who have faith in Jesus that will have a clearer picture right now, that we have a clearer picture of what he was doing and accomplishing than the disciples did while having that dinner in his presence because we understand the fullness of what God is doing and has done. And so we can call people to repent and believe and see all people drawn to Jesus. And I think we forget that to come to faith in Christ means that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made us alive. And so we are seeing a miraculous thing as someone turns in faith to Jesus. And if any of you feel the spirit of God working in you tonight, it may be that that miraculous thing is happening within you, that, that life is being breathed into your soul that on its own is dead because God is able to bring life from the dead. This is what Jesus had done with Lazarus, and that opportunity is extended to every one of us as we join him in his work of calling people to himself into the fullness of life filled by his spirit. And so the disciples are commissioned to do this work, and they're also told that the fuel for it is their prayers. He says, listen, you're going to do greater works because I'm going to the Father. And so whatever you ask in my name, this I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That seems like a challenge, doesn't it? Have any of you ever tried to use this as a challenge and put Jesus to the test on it? I know there's a whole passage where he says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. So of course you've never done that. But have you? <laughs> I can remember being a kid and doing it and being like, in the name of Jesus, I want a better car. In the name of Jesus, I want some money. I wake up in the morning expectantly and look under my bed, no money. Does that mean that Jesus isn't hearing me or that I'm doing it wrong? No, it means that praying in Jesus, and tagging in Jesus' name to the end of it isn't magic. 
that, and, and we, we have a tendency to do this, and it's a good thing. We, we, usually, we often tag our prayers by saying, in, in, the, in Jesus' name, amen. And I think for sometimes for us, that's just like, uh, we don't know how to close it, and I've heard people close it, and so that's how I'm going to close it. But, but there is something here that Jesus is calling us to pray in his name, not as a magical incantation, but I think what he's calling us to is that we are praying in the fullness of a consistency with all that his name stands for, that we are praying in alignment with the purposes of God for the sake of the glory of God, that he's inviting us saying, hey, this is what's going forward. Jesus, says, Jesus said, it says over and over, I only say what my father told me to say. I only do the works that my father has told me to do. And so if you're going to do these works, you're going to do even greater things. And anything that you ask in my name, I'm ready to give it to you as you join God in his work. And one theologian said here that at this point, redemption is being won and the kingdom of God is triumphantly invading the nations with saving and transforming power. And the locus of the covenant community stretches outward from its Jewish confines to embrace the whole world. And the disciples themselves are empowered and equipped to engage in far-reaching ministry. And this turns on the gift of the Holy Spirit the gift about to be introduced into the discussion in this passage. And so when we're called to pray in Jesus' name, that's what we're being called to, is to join God in his work and plead with God that he will use us that way. I think it's worth mentioning, too, that in Ephesians chapter 2, even the section we read is often where people will stop, even if you get through the good works part, and you say, okay, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's not by our works so that no one can boast, but we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then immediately, Paul goes in in the next verse to bring up the rapid and overwhelming expansion of the good news of the gospel and the movement of God's spirit beyond just Jewish people to the Gentiles. That in Christ, that Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. That we, through him we all have access to the Father, in one spirit, to the Father. So it is through Christ in the Spirit, to the Father. And so none of us are aliens or strangers, but all of us come together as fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, with Christ himself as our cornerstone. See, what Jesus is saying and saying you're going to do even greater works is he is saying you will not be able to imagine the way that the gospel is going to reach all people and call us into the kingdom of Christ. And so... That is first, to do the Father's work. Second, we're called to keep Jesus' word. So we go on to the next paragraph in verse 15, and, it says, and Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think everything that he has to say here is, is under that umbrella of if you love me. If you remember back in chapter 13, when he was sitting down with his disciples, it told us that that he was about to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That everything that comes after that is an expression of Christ's love for his own. And so the greater works can't come from anybody that's trying to manipulate Jesus into something. We see that in Acts chapter 8, there's a really funny story uh, where um, the the gospel first went to the Samaritans and crossed a racial boundary that 
even the apostles weren't willing to cross at that point, but a guy named Philip was there and, and preached the gospel. And so Peter, James, and John came and laid hands on the Samaritan people, and they received the Holy Spirit. And there was a guy named Simon the Magician, not a very subtle name um, on what his purposes were. But he, it talks about how he tried to manipulate things and say, like, hey, the power I'm seeing at work in them, like, can I pay you for that? Like, what's, what's, what does this cost me? He was rebuked. You can't get access to manipulate God. That's not what goes on here. Everything is governed by our love for Christ. It's not a transactional relationship where we obey in order to earn something. Instead, it's Jesus is saying, all who love him will be obedient to him out of their love for him, and then the Spirit will come and help us do good work. If we keep Jesus' word... That language of keep is, it happens four times in this section, where in verse 15, it tells us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. In verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him. And in verse 24, on the other side, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. This language is about guarding and protecting and also about obeying. So Jesus is saying, cling to these things, cling to my words, cling to the commandments I've given you, remember these things. And he goes on later to say, the Spirit's going to help you remember all of this stuff, but guard it, protect it, cling to it, keep Jesus' word, and that extends to us as well. We're called similarly, okay, we're, gonna be, we're called to do the Father's work. We're not going to be able to do the Father's work if we're not keeping Jesus' word and, and his commandments in the midst of, midst of it. He's saying, don't leave these things behind. Don't forget. Don't get sidetracked. And make, sh- make sure to keep the main thing the main thing. And look at all the promises that follow each one of these, uh, these commands. So it says in verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And what will happen? Well, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper who will be with you forever. So we're promised God's presence. In verse 21, we read, Whoever it is that keeps my commandments, or has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. But right before that, Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. It's a little while, and the world won't see me anymore, but you will see me. And whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's them who love me. So he says, the promise here is if we keep his commandments, we love him, and God the Father will love us as his children, that we will be loved, we will not be orphaned and abandoned. He goes on then, verse 23, where it said, he says, keep my word. What's the promise? He says, well, if anyone who loves me will be loved by my father, and he will love him and manifest, my, I will manifest myself to him. And so Jesus is saying, if you keep my word, the logos, the fullness of what he had taught, and the truth of who Jesus is and what he has said, if you keep those things, then what happens is Jesus will show himself to you. He will be revealed to you. And so keep my commandments, you'll get God's presence. Keep, keep the commandments, and, we, and, and God's, you'll receive God's love as a father to his children. Keep Jesus' word, and you will see Christ. And then finally... If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine but the Father's. And so if we come and keep Jesus' word, we are brought into the household of God as brothers and sisters together. And so we're called to do the Father's work. We're called to keep Jesus' word 
And third, we're called to trust the Spirit's help in the world. And throughout this, the Spirit of God is introduced. Now, this is going to be some, a topic that comes up as we go through the farewell discourse, especially in chapter 16. We're going to come back to this. But Jesus, for the first time to his disciples here, introduces the third person of the Trinity. I think we, many of us, don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, I, I always think about the Holy Spirit as kind of like, I don't know, I had uncles growing up who were, as a kid, were super fun but you never knew what was gonna happen when they were around. Like stuff always got a little bit crazy at family parties. Like, I, I don't know, I remember Uncle Ron one time, he was an older guy that was married to my grandpa's sister. So, but Uncle Ron one time, we were, it was Christmas Eve and all the men went outside to have a cordial and a cigar and he decided to walk out onto a frozen lake, but there was water in the middle of the lake and we were out, way out on the lake and Uncle Ron's doing this and water's coming up over the, the ice and it was like, what is even happening now? It was fun, but scary. I think that's sometimes how we think of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like... All right, we're out here. I don't really know what's going on right now, but, and it's, it's fun, but I'm scared. <laughs> and, so, and so we need to understand that the, the Spirit of God is a, the third person of the Trinity, fully God, that is three in one, three persons in one substance. And so we, just as we come to the Father and we, we keep Jesus' word, now we're being promised the Spirit of God is the presence of God with us and in us, and he is the helper who has been given to us. In the Greek, this word is parakletos, which is often translated, you'll hear people talk about the Spirit of God as the paraclete. That's in the ESV, that's translated helper. In other versions, you'll see that translated sometimes as counselor. And so the Spirit is referred to four times in the farewell discourse as the helper, twice as the Spirit of truth. Once is, I'm sorry, three times as the Spirit of truth, and once as the Holy Spirit. So these are some of the titles that Jesus is using in John's gospel. Now, this is helpful for us, too. The paraclete in, in the Greek language and in this time in history was a very specific term. It was, it was someone who was called alongside someone else. And in the Greek world, this typically had legal implications. And so if you were in trouble and you needed legal assistance, it was the, a paraclete was someone who would come alongside you to help you to navigate the courts and the legal system, to advocate for you. That legal sense comes out more in chapter 16, so we'll talk more about that there. And so, but we need to understand that, that when some translations use the word counselor here, that's what they mean, is legal counsel, not the way we might use the word counselor now, unless we're watching like courtroom drama, right? And so, or if you're a lawyer, I'm sorry, maybe you use that term more often. So, but, but that's the terminology here. So it's not saying just that the Spirit is just a counselor as like someone who brings us comfort, though he is a comforter. But this, in this context, it's not like a marriage counselor or a camp counselor or a therapist. It's saying that he is someone who comes alongside us to help us navigate what we're walking through and is our advocate along the way. He's called the spirit of truth here. And so remember that Jesus had just said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. And so now the Holy Spirit is being given to bear witness to and to glorify the truth that is Jesus. 
And so this is the, he's promised that he will be our helper along the way, that he will be with us and will dwell in us, that we won't be left as orphans. And the guarantee we read in Ephesians chapter one, the deposit God has put down to show us that we have been brought into Christ and we have our secure, a secure inheritance in eternity is the spirit's presence in our lives. And so the spirit, it, it, this is why it's better for Jesus. And he tells them it's better for me to go because you're going to do greater work than I will do is because the Spirit of God will indwell these apostles and indwell those who turn to Jesus in faith so that the message will spread across the entire world to all people rather than just staying in this one corner of Palestine. And so there are six promises about the Holy Spirit in this passage. It's, It's packed full of a theology of the Spirit but just briefly tonight, we're going to put them all on the screen at once so they're all in front of you. And maybe one or two of these six, so yeah, we can go ahead and put them up now. This is how the Holy Spirit helps us in John 14. This is not an exhaustive list of how the Holy Spirit helps us. But right here in this context, in these few paragraphs, this is, these are six promises that we have that we can cling to. My hope tonight is that even one of these will be exactly what you need to hear. That the Spirit of God is moving through the reading of God's word, through the proclamation of the good news of the gospel, and that one of these will be God's word to you tonight, or multiple, but at least one. So six promises. Well, first, the Spirit helps us to know God. This is in the context of what we've just been reading, that, that especially in 1417, that, that even the spirit of truth, the world can't receive the spirit of God because it neither sees nor knows him. But if you are in Christ, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. A theologian said here that, that our world is profoundly materialistic and the world is suspicious of the things it cannot see, but seeing it in itself guarantees nothing as the world's response to Jesus demonstrates. People around Jesus saw everything he did and it still didn't matter. The truth is the world doesn't know the spirit of truth and cannot accept him. But if you are in Christ, if God is working by his spirit in your heart, by his grace, through, through your faith to bring you into salvation and into his family, then the spirit opens the way to know God. A second promise is that you will understand God's word. And so this is beginning in verse 25, where it says, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, I love this one because this is a promise to the disciples in the moment. That Jesus is saying to them, like, you're not, gonna, you're not understanding any of this right now. And they weren't. I mean, that's why, like, you notice that we've had four different disciples just in the immediate conversation that have broken in with questions, where Jesus says, okay, I'm going to a place that you're not going to follow me, but here's the big command you need, is love one another. That's how the world will know that you're with me, is it by your love for one another? And Peter goes like, what? Where are you going? <laughs> I'll follow you anywhere. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, well, will you? Like, Peter, you're going to deny me three times by morning. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. So trust me that I'm preparing a place. And Thomas steps up and goes, what? We, where are you going? we don't know the way. How do we get to this place you're preparing for us? Like, I think Thomas was probably thinking, like, is it back in Jerusalem? Is it, is it somewhere there? Is that, are they going back home to Galilee? Like, where, what place? 
we don't know the way. Jesus says, Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And so you know the way, and it's the way to the Father. And Philip says, then Philip jumps in and he says, uh, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough. And, he, and Jesus goes, Philip, do you even know who I am? Like, you've been with me all this time, but whoever has seen me has seen the Father, and you're going to do greater things than I've done, because in all that you ask in my name, you will, you will receive, because you're going to do the Father's work, and, and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and you'll know God, and, I, and you'll, God will be with you and in you, and you're getting this helper, the spirit of truth, and Judas, who the poor guy the rest of his life was known as not Iscariot. <laughs> hey, Judas, but not that one. And Judas steps up and he says, Lord, how are you going to manifest yourself to us and not the world? This is the same question we'd be asking. Like, what are you talking about? Like, we can see you right here. We're at a table eating with you. And so they were still missing it. But Jesus was promising them here that the Spirit was going to help them to remember everything that had happened. And that after the resurrection, they would understand and recall Jesus' teaching by the Spirit's work in them. That's why you keep saying to them, like, you don't understand this now, but you're about to. And John then wrote all this down for us, the things he remembered. Now, it is, listen, it is very popular in, in a skeptical and cynical way to approach to what the Bible has to say, especially in the New Testament, to talk about the, that it all has to be somewhat fabricated because nothing was written down in any close proximity to the events themselves. It is historical reality that most of the Gospels and most of the New Testament was written down within 30 to 40 years of the events taking place that they, that they tell us about. That is just not that much time. I know that it's longer than some of you have been alive, so you can't remember anything 30 years ago. You'll get there. The older you get, the closer 30 years ago seems. And so 30 years ago was 1992. There were things that happened then that we can verify because people were eyewitnesses to them. It's just not that long ago. I mean, that was when we saw the rise of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan's star ascending, where he would go on to win his second championship in the first three-peat. If any of us would have had the Back to the Future almanac, we would have been rich. It just wasn't that far away. But Jesus is telling them, you're going to remember all this. And what it tells us, it extends to us saying the same sense that when we search God's word for understanding or hope to remember it when we're struggling, when we're in a time of need, that the spirit of God will illuminate God's word for us, helping us to understand it and helping us to remember the promises he's made. And so the Spirit helps us to know God, to understand God's word, and third, to have peace in trouble. And I love verse 27 when Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's saying, listen, this is about to get ugly. Like, you guys, it's going to be dark. He goes on at the end to say, like, the prince of this world is coming. Like, it's one thing if it's like Halloween and somebody's trying to freak you out about demons coming. It's another thing if Jesus is at dinner with you and he's like, Satan's on his way here right now. But Jesus, what is he saying to them? He says, listen, I'm giving you a sense of peace in the midst of trouble. That is something that nobody in our world has that everybody is reaching toward. But our world can never give us peace. Why? Because there are no human solutions to the problems that we face that we have real spiritual problems in front of us, and we have seen, we can look back over human history, we have thousands of years of human history that we can look back at and realize that there are no human solutions that can bring a perfect utopia. 
that there are no political solutions, there are no economic solutions, there are no ideological solutions conceived of by human beings because anything that we can conceive of is wholly unable to address and reverse the reality of sin and brokenness in this world. But God offers a peace by his spirit that will pass all human understanding so that we can find rest in Christ. The fourth promise is that the Holy Spirit will help us rejoice in all things. And I love this. Jesus, you can hear a little bit of like, you guys, you don't even understand me. He's when he says, listen, you've heard me say I'm going away. If you, if you loved me, you'd be rejoicing for me because I'm going to the Father. Don't you know where I'm headed to? Like, it's going to be hard getting there, but Jesus is like, I know where I'm going, and I can't wait to get back there. The Father's greater than I, and he's looking ahead to going and returning into the Father's presence fully in the fullness of undiminished glory. Remember the, the passage that we read together out of Philippians 2 earlier in the service saying, Christ emptied himself of access to that kind of glory and took on flesh, became a baby, grew up and through a human life, was killed because the darkness that he stepped into didn't recognize him as the light who created. And and, and in the midst of all of that, I mean, Jesus is the greatest cross-cultural missionary who ever lived. And he's saying, this is what I'm headed back to. He said, you would be rejoicing if you understood the fullness of what's happening. And And so here there's a promise to us that the Spirit can move in our hearts in the ugliest of circumstances to keep a bigger picture and perspective and a longer view so that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering and that we can have joy even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. This is a promise that we have. Fifth, we're promised that the Spirit will help us believe in Christ. He says, now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Remember, John's entire gospel was written so that, he says, these things were written down. He says, there's all kinds of stuff I could have written, but these things were written down so that you may, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we've seen salvation to us, to have our eyes open to the beauty and majesty of God, to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ, is a work of God's Spirit in us. He helps us to believe, and it's a gift of God. Our belief is a gift from God. It is by God's grace, and our response is through faith. But it's the Spirit of God that opens our hearts to turn to Jesus in faith. I've said that I hope that at least one of these things is is what, God, what you needed to hear from God today, tonight. For some of you, it might be this, that you have a sense of understanding, your eyes are open, and you feel a sense of God's presence because he's calling you to believe and to follow Jesus. And so, with, so far, we've seen that the Spirit helps us to know God and helps us to understand God's word, helps us to have peace in trouble and to rejoice in all things. The Spirit helps us to believe in Christ. And sixth, to rise up with courage. Jesus says, listen, I'm only talking with you for a little longer, or I'm not talking with you much longer. Why? For the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So rise up. Let's go from here. Jesus shows what obedience looks like. His obedience manifests the glory of the Father and secures the presence of the Spirit with us and in us. And he's saying, yes, Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion looking to devour you. Yes, in our lives, we are going to walk into heavy things knowingly at times and unknowingly at others. We are opposed by the world and the flesh and the devil. 
Yes, there are hard days and suffering ahead. There will be good days, but we can guarantee that as we look ahead, we will have hard days and that the suffering will come. But whatever comes, we can know that we're not orphans, that God sees us and knows us and loves us, that, and, and the Spirit gives us the courage we need to stand up and face whatever is put into our paths. And so this is the promise we have in the text tonight. You're not alone if you're in Christ. God is with us. In, in, by the Spirit, God is in us. By the Spirit of God, God is with us and in us so that we can do the Father's work and keep Jesus' word and trust the Spirit's help as we walk through life in this world. Let's pray. Father, this is stuff that's easy for us to lose sight of because we try to figure stuff out on our own and get stuff done on our own and work in the power of our own flesh, both in our lives and in the church, rather than in the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that your spirit would flood our hearts, that your spirit would fill this church, that you would help us to, to lean in ever more deeply, to have a sense of your presence and your leading and wisdom that we would trust that we can do the hard work to plant and to water, but it's only you that brings growth, and that's by your spirit being poured out on people. Would you give us the courage we need for the days ahead? Would you give us an understanding of what you're calling us to, what, you're, what you've revealed for us, and what you want us to do? And Lord, tonight I pray that your spirit would minister to, to each heart who is hearing your word. You know what every person here needs in ways that none of us can. You know what each one of us needs in ways that we might not know ourselves. And so, Father, would you work by your spirit? Lord Jesus, would you work by the Spirit and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would shave off the calluses from our hearts so that we could feel your presence. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.